Hello everyone. No fancy intros today. No songs, I'm afraid, although I am working on one for next time. No, today is a race against time. It's half term. I'm in charge of the kids. I've got them playing Minecraft or Pokemon or something downstairs. I reckon I've got between one and two hours before too much screen time makes one of them at least vomit on the sofa. So we'd better crack on. Are you sitting comfortably? Then let's begin. It's Friday, the 25th of February, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and as ever I will be taking you through the next 10 to 20 minutes or so having a look at what's been going on in the news and the journals over the last couple of weeks. So it's good to be back. It's the tail end of half term here. My wife had desperately been trying to swap some shifts around so that we could go away for a few days. She managed it. We made it down to South Devon. Nothing says good time like being stuck in the dregs of an Airbnb you just booked a few days ago, not realising that there's the worst storms in the last 30 years coming with even less entertainment for the children than you would have in your normal home. Seeing a patient called Eunice on my morning list has now become a, a trigger for some pretty nasty flashbacks. So the storms have been big news. Then, of course, we've got Russia invading Ukraine. We've got a megalomaniac dictator deciding he wants even more. Really bad news for Ukraine. Pretty bad news for the rest of the world, too. Meanwhile, closer to home, the government has decided that COVID is over. Hands, face, space has been replaced with hug, cough, catch. And Britain's aim to become the first country with true COVID herd immunity continues at a pace. You no longer need to self-isolate, which could have made my January much, much better, but probably would have made it a lot worse for many of those around me. However, before you get too excited or too worried about the thought that you're going to infect loads of your patients, don't worry, I see today NHS England has said that NHS staff will still need to not attend work for at least five days. Meanwhile, NHS England don't seem to have got the memo because they've recommended that patients, staff and visitors should continue to wear face masks in GP practices. Now, let's be honest, this is eminently sensible given the fact that we're likely to see people who are very infectious. But I think all of us will be able to anticipate the pushback from a large number of our patients given the fact they don't have to wear a mask at any other point in their lives now. So what do you think about the restrictions ending? Good idea, bad idea? What's the implications for general practice? Do get in touch. As ever, you can contact us on email, hottopics at mbmedical.com, Twitter, so at GP Hot Topics, or on Facebook. I'd love to know how you think this is all going to pan out. Despite half term, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. We've just put the finishing touches to the latest Hot Topics course. Do join us for our first live webinar on Saturday, the 5th of March. Whilst I'm thinking about new courses, Thursday, the 3rd of March, join us for our Managing Obesity and Overweight course. This is a brand new course being put together by Dr. Stephanie DiGiorgio. She's been a long-standing member of the Hot Topics team but she's got a particular area of expertise and interest in obesity. That's going to be talking about the science behind it, the effects on patients, what are the most effective treatments, and, crucially, what we can do in primary care to help. 
And don't forget, if you missed a couple of weeks ago, our two brand new courses, we've just done a, an evening webinar on dermatology. That was hugely successful. One and a half thousand people attended. You can watch it on demand for free. Just go to mbmedical.com and we'll be putting on a longer, more involved dermatology webinar later on in the year. Do keep a lookout for that. And we had our abnormal blood test course, another brand new course that we did a couple of weeks ago, also hugely successful, also available now on demand to watch back at your convenience. Let's move on to the research then. So three papers we're going to have a look at today. The first is a paper in the BMJ on the accuracy of lateral flow tests, which I thought was quite timely considering all the changes that we're seeing in COVID monitoring and restrictions at the moment. Then we're going to have a look at another BMJ paper on the diagnosis of deep vein thrombosis using clinical probability scores. And then we're going to have a paper on a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on Zika. Do you remember Zika? Those were the days. Now, many of us over the last two years have been repeating the mantra again and again and again to patients. If you've got symptoms, you need to go and get a PCR. A lateral flow test is simply not accurate enough. That's been the government recommendations for most of the pandemic. We know that not all of their recommendations always seem particularly logical to many of us. But this one has stood the test of time. The government website still recommends that people get a PCR test if they're symptomatic, even though, of course, many people have been diagnosing themselves on a positive lateral flow. The idea about the lateral flows being less accurate was called into question quite a long time ago now when it became apparent that PCRs were so sensitive that they would continue to give a positive result many uh, weeks after someone's actually had an infection and is no longer infectious. This led to the suggestion that lateral flows were actually very accurate during the infectious period and actually comparing the supposed accuracy against PCRs was actually not very helpful at all. Nevertheless, the government recommendations have never changed and we keep on repeating that mantra. So in this BMJ paper, they were looking to investigate the proportion of lateral flow tests that produced negative results in people who were high risk of infectiousness. Now, the paper highlights some of the challenges here. So it highlights the difference in sensitivity between PCR and lateral flow tests. The fact that there's no international reference standard for infectiousness and also acknowledging that there isn't in reality a hard cutoff point where you can say someone with a viral load above this is infectious and below this is not infectious. The point at which an individual is infectious actually is highly variable between individuals. That's before we get anywhere near the idea about whether someone's done a test effectively or not bearing in mind that the lateral flow tests weren't originally intended for people to be self-testing. Having had a professional do a lateral flow test on me to get back out of Mallorca and back into the UK in the summer, there was a stark contrast between how far I was putting the swab in compared with what they were doing. Basically, when they did it, it felt like they were trying to rip out my brains. And when I do it, it feels a bit tickly. So what most people in the general population are doing, I have no idea. I've watched my kids do a lateral flow test many times now and particularly with the younger one I know that he's basically just scraping around the edges. How accurate can that really be? So the study wanted to answer the question what proportion of people who are positive for COVID-19 would be missed by the use of lateral flow tests and specifically they were looking at the Innova brand which many of us will be extraordinarily familiar with now. 
across three different settings. So firstly, a NHS test and treat uh, or test and trace centre. Then also in residents who don't have symptoms attending a municipal mass testing centre in Liverpool when that was a thing. And then also students without symptoms being screened at the University of Birmingham. Let's go straight to the results. They showed that 20% of people would have been missed on lateral flow tests in an NHS test and trace centre, 29% in the mass testing um, centre and 81% of those university students. Given those figures, that also meant that sources of secondary cases were poorly identified by lateral flow tests. So 38% were missed, 47% and 90% missed respectively in those different groups. When they compared these rates of missed infections against some of the models that have been used over the last two years, particularly ones used by government to make their assessment about um, what strategies we should be using for covid it shows that those mathematical models substantially underestimated the amount of cases that were going to be missed. They concluded that we urgently need um, robust, well-designed and reported empirical studies for the intended use settings to form evidence-based policy. For me, there are a couple of issues that come out of reading this paper. The first is that the methodology here is extremely complex. First, they scoured the research to try and work out the accuracy of the INOVA test in real-world settings based around viral load. Then they used that to work out the probability an individual with a positive cultural result would be missed. They then used those predicted probabilities at different uh, viral load levels to predict the total number of missed infected individuals. They would have been detectable by PCR and used that to predict the missed sources of secondary cases. Only experts in this field could really hope to interpret whether the methodology that they're using is a good one or not. The authors here have already highlighted the difficulties with previous data that they've got but of course they're also using previous data to make some of the, assu the assumptions in this study and I dare say that authors of other studies that have formed some of the other models that they're critiquing here as well are likely to have very different opinions on what works or doesn't work, what is accurate and what is not accurate. That leaves most of us on the ground just scratching our head wondering what to believe. And that brings us on to the second point, which is our real-world experience of lateral flows. I'm sure loads of you out there by now have had COVID. I suspect loads of you have been doing lateral flows quite regularly for quite a long time. It seems to me that it is not infrequent that you might get a false positive on a lateral flow but when you are symptomatic with covid those tests boy do they really show up they go really positive really quickly and then they stay really positive for quite a long time and then you can gradually follow the strength of the reaction declining over the next couple of weeks or so the linked opinion piece to this paper suggests that the public deserves to have better evaluations ensuring good test performance in real life settings and a policy that specifies effective and efficient test use for carefully targeted purposes. Well, this data seems to suggest that lateral flow tests are quite accurate in symptomatic cases and hideously inaccurate in asymptomatic cases. Is this the death knell for lateral flow testing and asymptomatic testing? Well, it could be. I'm not entirely sure this is what the government have based it on, but of course, we're going to stop doing testing of any sort in the very near future. Living with COVID means not testing for COVID. 
And while that concept may make many of us feel quite nervous, particularly when we have been testing regularly for quite a long time now, perhaps this paper will provide us reassurance if you don't have symptoms, then actually these tests are not as good as you may believe. Perhaps it is time to let them go. Okay, next we're going to have a look at the second BMJ paper on the use of a new diagnostic pathway for deep vein thrombosis. So this is a Canadian paper recruiting patients in emergency departments or outpatient clinics who had symptoms or signs of DVT. Now the pathway is quite clear in Britain. If we suspect a DVT, you do the well score. If that's low, then you do a D-dimer. If that's negative, great. If it's positive, off they go for a scan. If you do a well score and it's high, then they're going to get a D-dimer and a scan. Many roads lead to scans and not necessarily just one scan. They often have to have a follow-up scan a week later to confirm that there is no DVT. It's quite resource heavy for health services and there's a big, pay, uh, a big treatment burden here for the patient as well. So this paper wanted to see if there was a better way to clinically, in conjunction with a D-dimer test, decide which patients it would be safe to not do an ultrasound scan in. So they've come up with some different clinical criteria to indicate who may be low probability and doesn't need a scan. This included patients with a low well score, so zero or less, and a D-dimer up to 1,000 or a moderate well score. We don't really use that term in the UK, but that's a well score of one or two. Of course, two would normally be a urophorous scan here in the UK. But a well score of one or two and a D-dimer of less than 500 here was also given a low probability of DVT and those patients didn't need any further intervention. Higher scores or greater D-dimers, of course, they're still going to get an ultrasound. They also had criteria for who would have a follow-up ultrasound if the initial one was negative, including things such as if the D-dimer was over 3,000 initially. So they recruited 1,500 patients, 11.5% of them, so 173, had DVT on scheduled diagnostic testing, and a further 0.6% of them were subsequently found to have venous thromboembolism during longer-term follow-up over 90 days. So the miss rate is very low. But the big question is, where do those misses come from? Are they in the low probability group? These are the ones that you and I would not be sending to hospital. So there were 529 people in the low probability group. Out of 377 with a D-dimer of below 1,000, only one of them was subsequently discovered to have a DVT over the next 90 days. One out of 500 plus seems pretty good to me. Using this approach actually halved the number of ultrasound scans that were used. So it went down from an average of 1.36 scans per patient to 0.72 scans per patient. So they concluded that this was a good way to identify patients at low risk of DVT while substantially reducing the need for ultrasound imaging. So this is a very interesting strategy. It's of course it's going to need repeating to confirm the validity of the results. And it would be extremely welcome to see it specifically conducted in general practice. But I wonder if this could be the start of a change to the way in which we manage people with DVTs, a change to the long-standing algorithm that many of us have used for, for, for uh, over a decade now.
Now, lastly, a quick paper on the effects of Zika virus. And this was looking at the survival within the first few years of life for children with congenital Zika syndrome. Remember Zika? Remember when we were really, really worried about this uh, this disease that you could only catch by going abroad and it only really mattered for pregnant women or women who might be getting pregnant soon or men who might be having sex with pregnant who might, uh, women who might be pregnant or who might be getting pregnant soon. And yet all of us were really, really worried about it. And then we got COVID and we forgot Zika existed. Of course, Zika hasn't gone away. You still find it in lots of South and Central America, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, in various parts within Africa and Asia as well. Of course, Zika is most pertinent to people who permanently live in these areas. But as travel ramps up once again, it starts becoming more relevant to our patients closer to home. So probably the headline from this paper, which compared infant mortality within the first three years of life between children born without congenital Zika syndrome and those born with congenital Zika syndrome, it showed that those children born at term with congenital Zika syndrome are 14 times more likely to die, which may be linked to the increase in burden of congenital abnormalities, diseases of the nervous system and infectious diseases as well. Why does that matter to us? Well, you remember all those recommendations about how long you should abstain from intercourse and use barrier protection after someone's travelled to a Zika area. Do you remember all those recommendations about increased testing and increased gynaecology input in patients who had had exposure before or during pregnancy to Zika virus? Well, all of those recommendations are still in force They've completely gone from my mind. I wonder if many of you have thought about Zika recently either. And I think it's just a good aid memoir to us all. As our patients start travelling more and more once again, it's one of those things we just need to keep in the back of our mind, just need to ask patients about, advise them appropriately and refer when necessary. All right, that's it. I better sign off for day. It is time for me to take the kids to the pool. No, I'm not actually going to the toilet. I literally am going to take my kids to the pool for something to do in half term. Please do get in touch. Remember, um, hot topics at mbmedical.com, at GP Hot Topics on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. Do join us for one of our new courses. Don't forget you can subscribe to MB Plus, our subscription service, and all of the courses throughout the year will be included. It's just over £300 for the year. It is an absolute bargain. Don't forget to join the conversation on GP Horizon, our secure forum for primary healthcare professionals. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.